We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans and what we've been doing, reminding ourselves by way of review, letters are like two-way conversations. It's like listening to one half of a phone conversation and what you have to do to understand what's going on. You have to imagine what's happening on the other end of the line. Um, That's why we've been reminding ourselves of some of the things that are happening in Rome and And it helps us to understand why Paul writes the things he does. Jews had fallen out of favor with Rome because of the conflict between Jews and Jewish Christians who had been pushed out of Israel by persecutions and famine. So they came to exist in the same confines. Some of them didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of them did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so there was a conflict between these groups, classes of Jews, and it became so heated that the emperor Claudius in about 40 AD said, he asked Jews, not asked, forced Jews to leave Rome. And about five years later, uh, with with the crowning of a new emperor, Jews are again returning to Rome, Um, And what we've seen is that the Gentile Christians who were part of the church without their Jewish Christian older brothers got used to taking care of themselves for five years. When Jewish Christians returned, then it was a little bit of a conflict. Uh, And what Paul ends up doing, he... um, addresses the fact that Jews kind of believe that receiving the commandments made them superior to the pagan Gentiles. And when it happened, it became the basis for a kind of a spiritual superiority. Paul wants the Jewish Christians to serve their Gentile brothers and sisters, not feel superior to them. Uh, He wants Jewish Christians to see themselves as divine messengers dispatched by God to bring good news to the Gentiles who lived in darkness. For this reason, he talks about the messengers and the message that they have been entrusted with. We have your worship folder. We'll work our way through this passage, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Um, let's look at verses, first couple of verses. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified, By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It talks about being justified. That means being declared righteous. Last week, we learned that being pronounced righteous by God comes with three blessings. We looked at the fact that it means that lawless deeds are forgiven. Secondly, that sins are covered. Thirdly, that sin will not be counted in the life of the one who has been declared righteous by God. And all of this is available through faith, believing that when God sends Jesus, he allows those individuals who believe him to be declared righteous and and their sins no longer count. And we talked about that. Paul goes on to talk about three other blessings in this passage. He talks first about peace with God. Secondly, about access into grace. And thirdly, about the hope of glory. Peace with God 
It's the absence of judgment. And this kind of peace is not so much a feeling. It's a fact. Now, it can affect the way you feel when you believe it. But the, what peace with God means is that you're no longer in an adversarial relationship with God. There is no enmity between you and him. There's peace. There's good feeling. He then doesn't judge you. He accepts you. And when that is, and as we understand that, it does provide a sense of peace, but it is a fact. Whether you feel it or not. So do you have peace with God? And you would say, oh, I don't know, Mike. I, don't like it. I really didn't ask you how you feel. Do you have peace with God? And if you believe in Christ, what that means, your lawless deeds are forgiven. Your sins are covered. And God doesn't count your sin against you. Again, these are basics. And so in order to live the life God wants us to live, we have to build on the basics. And these are the basics, that these are the things that are true. And because these things are true, you have peace with God. It's a fact. And what we do as we believe this and come to understand it, it affects the way we relate to him, the way we relate to one another, the way we relate to ourselves. It says we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's a word talking about access by faith. It's when you're invited into the presence of a dignitary. That's how this word is used. And so not only do we have peace with God, but he invites us into his presence. He instills and inaugurates a relationship. It's not just the conferring of a not guilty. It's an open door for you into his presence. And it talks about hope of the glory of God. When we think of glory, glory is a really important thing biblically. We'll look at a couple of things. Um, glory does two things. It reveals and it transforms. Glory reveals and transforms. It reveals God's face. That's what glory does. Glory is kind of God shining outward, and we might think of glory as rays emanating from God, you know, wow, 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 wow. But when God reveals his glory, it doesn't just go out into the atmosphere. When God reveals glory, it goes towards people. Glory is a relational radiation. It's when God expresses his face toward you. Um, so glory reveals, that's the first thing, and glory transforms those upon whom it shines. That's the deal with glory. We were created to be transformed as God's glory falls upon us. So as we look at it, that's the, the most critical thing we can do in terms of becoming Christ-like is figuring out what God's face is expressing towards us and living in the light of it. A couple of things about glory. Uh, glory is the radiance of God's regard. If somebody cares about you and you haven't seen them for a while, you go over to visit and 
And if there's a relationship there and you walk in, you might face lights up. (laughs) That's the sense for glory. It's the radiance of God's regard. There's a couple kinds of glory, though. The word translated glory in the first half of the Bible, it's written in Hebrew originally. The second half, it's written in Greek. The words translated glory in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek are very different words. No, they have both translated glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. Kabod. And that means heavy, solid. It's like the, the throne room of a king that's established and firm. That's the Old Testament word for glory. It has a sense of weight. The New Testament word for glory is doxa, which means the way you think about a person. It's not so much weight as something that is an opinion you have. So if we were to put Old Testament glory is heavy, it's evaluation. New Testament glory is opinion and light, it's valuation. Um, The other difference between Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, glory makes an impression. Again, glory changes the person upon whom it shines. When God, when Moses went up and beheld God's glory, that glory changed his face. Now, Moses didn't have to try to be changed. Glory does that. That's what I'm saying. Glory just does that. That's why how we're created. And the, there, it makes an impression, but there's two different kinds of impressions. Old covenant glory creates one impression. New covenant glory creates another impression. Old covenant glory makes a fading impression. Again, if you remember what happened to Moses, he went up, saw God, his face started to glow. And then he came down and talked to the people, and the glow began to fade. And that was communicating something. All covenant glory makes a fading impression. Its change is skin deep and short-lived. Will old covenant obey the commandments and be blessed, disobey the commandments and be cursed? Will that change you? I see no and I see yes. The fact is, it will change you, but the change will be skin deep and short-lived. Right? That's what we find, a fading impression. On the other hand, New Testament glory makes a lasting impression. Its change is heart deep and Long lived. Look what it says in Isaiah 59. At this time, the time Isaiah writes, Israel was not in good shape morally. Some talk about the morality of our world and the country that we live in. At this time, there was no truth. There was no justice. Whoever shunned evil became a prey. It was decadent. They were moral flatliners. And God says he was displeased that there was no justice. But he was appalled that there was no one that was declaring his glory, that was revealing his word. Look what it says. A redeemer 
Isaiah writes and promises from God will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Talks about hope of the glory of God. What God promises that he is going to dispatch individuals who will reflect a different kind of glory. At the time before Jesus came, the only glory that anybody knew of with respect to God was Old Covenant. Jesus came to inaugurate a new covenant. What he said, Isaiah promised, God through him, there's going to be a redeemer, somebody who is going to come and reflect the face of God. And that was Jesus. Jesus reveals God's face. In the Old Testament of the Bible, you might see God's shadow. You don't see God's face there. God's face is revealed through Jesus Christ. So if you want to know how God feels about you, what God's face is like towards you, you need to look at the New Testament about what Jesus says about you because Jesus reveals God's face and what what was promised there would be a redeemer and fortunately the redeemer would have kids who would reveal the message that the redeemer came to provide and that's where the first responders the children of the Redeemer were Jewish Christians in the early church, and they were dispatched by God into the Gentile world in order to reflect what God was like to the Gentiles who really didn't know. We know what we know today because our older brothers, the Jewish Christians, they took the message, were dispatched out into the Gentile world, and they reflected what God was like they were transmitters of doxa in a world that only knew Kabod. Um, says Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. You know what this says? That what God's purpose was through Christ, a message would be dispatched to Gentiles. So we would have the opportunity to know what God was really like. We would have the opportunity to understand when you see God clearly, it's not kabod, it's not evaluation, it's valuation. The Old and New Testament feel different. They are different. There's not a mistake. God began with one and progressed in another. A way to see it is the Old Testament is God with analog clarity. Again, you can't have an analog television signal. Everything changed over to digital. Digital is way clearer. 
The Old Testament is analog. The New Testament is digital. It helps us understand what God is really like. And Jesus came to bring that and so that Gentiles would have the opportunity to be able to know him. Paul sees Jewish Christians as the means by which Gentiles can perceive and believe new covenant glory. They are transmitters. We're transmitters of light in dark places. The process by which God equips reflectors to reflect him, I think that's what's talked about in verses 3 through 5. Look what it says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think this is what this verse is saying. This is a storm. The first, those who would walk with God, sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in storms. Why does God allow difficult things to occur? He doesn't protect us from experiencing difficulties. If you've walked with Christ any period of time, you know that. It can be difficult to understand why. It talks about the process that God takes his children through so that they can reflect his glory in a dark world. What does that process look like? It begins with endurance. Endurance. What endurance means is that if God is active in our life, bringing us to a place that we can both see and reflect his glory, you're going to find yourself in situations where you're going to have to remain in a situation you don't want to be in. That's what endurance means. That if you could change your situation, you could. But what you're going to find that you can't, and you have to stay in a situation you'd rather not stay in. When we're in that place, we can think, I wonder what I did wrong. Didn't do anything wrong. You're being equipped to do the thing Jesus did. It begins with endurance. And so, if God's active in your life, it's not pleasant, but you're going to be able to point to some difficult things. That doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It means you're doing something right. It begins with endurance. It talks about character. Character is evidence. What character means, it's, it's like if you take a ring and you refine it and the base metals are removed and what you end up happening in the refinement process, you end up with a pure gold. And that's what this word describes endurance, going through things, what that brings us through, once you've gone through some difficult things and come through the other end, and you're still trying to walk with him, that is evidence, provenness. We can't really understand or validate the depth of our faith if everything's going well. It's when things don't go well. And we try to hang on to him. That's when you know that you have something real. Again, this isn't pleasant, but this is what it's talking about. This is how God makes 
not only individuals who can see his love, but transmit that love to others. And then it talks about assurance. Hope in the Bible, it's not something that might happen. Hope is more a sense of assurance. It's the understanding, you know what? I'm going to be in a good place. So here's what it describes. God brings us in situations where we have to endure. But as we endure, it creates a sense of evidence. Evidence leads to a sense of assurance. And at the heart of this thing, there's the love of God. It's poured out into our hearts. We're going to talk, and again, in the seminar this weekend, we're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about sympathy. Divine sympathy is really important. It's what Jesus offers us. When we're in situations where there's difficulty, um, what Jesus wants us to be in touch with is his sympathy. You know what Jesus understands? Jesus understands what it's like to live in tension. And that's what we're going to talk about, and it's really important. Jesus knows what it's like to have family problems. Would you agree? If you experience family conflict, what Jesus wants you to understand, I understand what that's like. You're not alone. Apparently, understanding Jesus' sympathy is not nice. It's necessary. The thing that's going to help you endure is sympathy, divine sympathy, Jesus' sympathy. He understands. You feel less alone. Sympathy, endurance will produce evidence, which will produce assurance. The ability to stay in a difficult cycle is centered in understanding the love of God, and it begins with sympathy. Jesus came, was born into a family. He could have come and just been plopped into somebody at age 30. He wasn't. He was entered this life through a womb. He grew up in a family, in a Jewish family. Why did he have to go through that? Here's the answer. So that you could know. He sympathizes with you. His sympathy is not nice. It's necessary. That's what we'll talk about. So there's sympathy, and then there's sovereignty. These two things, if you're distressed, if life is difficult, there's two things that are going to help you. Sympathy, which is Jesus' understanding, and sovereignty. I told Sheila I really like this song. Here's what the Father says. Peace. I know there's turbulence. I'm going to be, here's what God, I think, would say, be still. There's things whipping around you. God would say, be still. I am God. I'm going to be exalted in the nations, and I'm going to be exalted in the earth. And I promise I will never leave you. To leave means to cast somebody adrift. I think that's what God says we're in a storm. I will never cast you adrift. And I will never forsake you. I will never leave you behind. I will never desert you. That's what he says. Sympathy and sovereignty, as we 
hold on to those things, it allows us to endure. And endurance creates evidence. Evidence creates assurance. Uh, the word hope means being sure of something unseen. Um, and for these first Jewish Christians, and again, it doesn't just apply to them, but as Paul writes, that's who he's addressing. They really will need to know this. You know why? Because every place they look, there'll be exclusion. They're not accepted by Gentiles because they're Jews. They're not accepted by Jews because they're Christians. Everywhere they look, they find exclusion, exclusion, exclusion. And what Jesus gives them is something they really need to grasp and which we need to grasp. Jesus, in their exclusion, saying, I understand exactly what exclusion feels like. And the Father says, shh, be still. I'm going to accomplish my purposes, and I will never cast you adrift, and I will never leave you behind, and I will cause all things to work together for good. And you know what the deal is? They really need to cling to that because their life was difficult. Um, they will need to understand their role as sons of the Redeemer who come well, it says God's love has been poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. You can pour God's love into one of two things. You can pour God's love into a container. And if you pour it into, into a container, it fills up with the love. And some people think that's what God's love is like. It fills us up. And then... If it gets to overflowing, it spills out onto other people. You can pour love into a container, or you can pour love into a conduit. You pour it into a conduit, it goes into and through. And it seems God pours out his love into our hearts and into the hearts of these first Jewish Christians and into our hearts as well, not so that we can contain it, but so that we can be a conduit of it. And that's, that is the image. I heard, told you an illustration once. It's kind of a little bit silly, but it makes the point. Um, there was a, a bamboo grove, and there were these bamboo shoots, and they were talking. That's, that's kind of a weird. <laughs> Anyways, so the farmer comes along who, who tends these, this bamboo grove, and uh, one of the bamboo shoots says, I want to be used. And the farmer says, you want to be used? Yeah, I want to be used. And so then the farmer takes out a machete. Starts whacking at the butt. Ah! And the bamboo says, you want to be used, don't you? He says, yeah, this is part of the process since we kept chopping. And then he took this bamboo shoot and then took this red-hot rod and started to drive it through the middle of the... Oh, yo, man! He, he said, you want to be used, didn't you? This is part of the process. And he cleaned out the inside. And then he just put the bamboo shoot out into the heat. Just sat there. It's hot. You want to be used as part of the process. And then he took these bamboo shoots, and they traveled a little bit and went up to a mountain. And so one end of the bamboo shoot was ramped into another. Oh, another was, oh, and so they were just sitting there. 
and says, what are we doing here? And he says, you see that, see that mountain up there? There's water up on that mountain. And you see that village down there? They need the water. We are a conduit that's bringing water from up there to down there. God loves people. They don't know it. But he creates conduits through whom God's love can flow. We are conduits, not containers. We experience God's love in order that we can pass it on to others. And as we pass it on, we experience it. That seems to be the way it works. Um, the need to endure difficulties, which it talks about in this, it seems, well, look what it says in Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus went through this process. Good says, in the days of his flesh, that's going to surprise some of you. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Sometimes we think that we need to be very polite in our communications with God. Does it seem like Jesus was being polite here? He was being, well, he was going through difficult things. And when he came to his father, he knew that the father wanted him to be truthful, honest, real. And that's what he did. It goes on to say, to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus learned obedience. Does that surprise you? Jesus had to learn obedience? There's a, there's a couple different words for obedience. This specific word means to under-listen. Under-listening. So obedience, it has the sense of tuning someone in when there's all kinds of flack going on. It's too, Jesus had to learn to tune God in. Why did he have to learn to tune God in? Because he came to be a spirit within a body just like you and I. And so he had different things. And, and when you have a body, it, it doesn't always like to be subjected to difficulties. Ow! Ah! No! And, and it's a process of learning to tune God in when the world is shouting at us and when there's a, a riot of thoughts and feelings inside, we have to learn to tune God in. Would you agree with that? And it's we don't have to learn it because we're bad. Jesus had to learn it. We have to learn it because we have to learn it. And you know why we have to learn it? Because they need to know that he loves them and his love is up there. And he has to channel it through somebody. That's why we have to, that's why we have to learn what we have to learn. Um, we have to learn to underlisten. Um, Jesus didn't need to learn obedience because he was a son, although he was a son. See, he knew he was a son. Why did Jesus have to learn not in order to be a son, 
in order to be a source so that he could be the source of eternal life. Here's the deal. If you want to be used, to communicate God's love in a deep way to somebody else. You're going to have to have gone through difficult things. It's not nice to go through difficult things. What I want you to what I'm trying to point out here, if you're going through difficulties, it's not because you've been rejected. It's because you've been selected. Anybody who has been used deeply by God has experienced pain. Jesus' half-brother, James, same mother, different father. Um, what he says in James 1, 2 through 5, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Perfect and complete, it's not talking about moral perfection. What it's talking about, the ability to channel something. It's, it's the ability to be a conduit. The ability to represent God. That's the sense of perfect and complete. It's, it's what describes the process where a priest would be equipped to know God's word and to help others to know what a Jewish priest in the context. And what James is saying to these Jewish Christians who were dispelled into the Roman Empire and everywhere they looked, they felt difficult things. It was one thing for them to go when it was just them. They made a decision to follow Christ, but now they've been in the Roman world for a decade, perhaps. But now their children are suffering. They can't get good jobs. And so the problem then becomes they are in this place of saying, what's gone wrong? And what James is saying, nothing. Nothing. If you're going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, you're going to have to persevere. There's going to be difficult things. That's what James is indicating. Um, Difficulties we endure aren't just because we're doing something wrong. Those who channel good news have suffered enough to sympathize with others who dwell in darkness. Um, He talks about the messengers and what they go through, and then he talks about the message briefly. Look what it says. Um, Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To understand the message, we have to understand two things, what God did and when he did it. What God did and when he did it. And so what we find, what did he do? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. 
And he died so that we could be part of God's forever family. Here's the question. When did he do it? When did Christ die for us? And it says four things. When we were weak, Christ died for us. When we were ungodly, Christ died for us. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That's when he died for us. He didn't die when we were doing it well and saying it right. He died when we were doing it wrong and not doing it well. Uh, what does this mean? Clearly, again, poor Richard's almanac, decent thing, but God does not help those who help themselves. It's not true. God helps the weak, the ungodly, sinners, enemies, what it says. It means that um, God sent his son when we were all together helpless, and if he connected with us when we were sinners and weak and ungodly, is he going to disconnect from us when we sin? Some people indicate that God can't be in the presence of sin. That's crazy. It really is. God sent his son when we were sinners. If God sent his son when we were sinners, will he withdraw from you when you sin? Do, you, do we need to know that? We really do. We really do. Difficult things are difficult. God wants us to be open and honest with him. Um, you know what else this means? Um, it's, it's not just that God won't disconnect with us. Um, look at what it says in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God doesn't stop at forgiveness. Forgiveness is just the beginning. Forgiveness opens the door to relationship. That's what reconciliation means. It's to change a relationship from enmity to peace and goodwill. Forgiveness is just the beginning. And that's why when we talk about dealing with sin, four statements, and I do them. I think about them because we need to know you don't just get forgiven. So if you do something wrong, think these things in your mind. God's still in you. God's still with you. Good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. Why do you need to know that? Because it's really important if you're going to hang in there that you're going to be able to, you're going to have to hang on to his sympathy and sovereignty if you're going to hang in there. This is not just nice. These are not just nice little things to think. They are absolutely essential. You need to know Jesus sympathizes with you. This is not nice. And you need to know that the Father's sovereignty is going to accomplish good purposes. He's still in you. He's still with you. Good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. I don't know what you did yesterday. I know we all mess up. And it's 
We need to think about this. He's still in me, still with me. Good still ahead of me, guaranteed. Reconciliation means that, well, look what it says, last verse, Corinthians 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ didn't die so that God would not judge us. Christ died so that God would be our Father. Here's how we wrap this up. The good news. The good news. This is what he wants us to believe. That in Christ, our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered. He's not counting our sin. We have peace with God. We have access to God. And we have the hope of glory that's something we behold and reflect. The good news is, that's what he wants us to believe. The not so good news, that's what he wants them to believe too. Whoever your them is, we like to embrace good news for us. They're a different story. I mean, they really don't try hard. They haven't done all the things that we've done. They don't deserve to have a gift like this. Do you get that? I get that. And you know what the deal is? God extends his message to us so that we could understand it. We've suffered enough to understand what it's like to be excluded. We need that because we are to extend it to them. Who's your them? That's why we need a sympathy and sovereignty. We need something that will allow us to endure. The not-so-good news is in order to channel this message to them, God's going to put you in circumstances where you feel like a them. You can't sympathize with them unless you've been a them. You understand what I'm saying? You feel disconnected? A little bit apart from, not included. Do you understand what it's like to feel like a them? Thinking, what do I do wrong? Where have I misstepped? You haven't misstepped. Anybody who has been used of God knows what it's like to be a them. Let me pray for us. Father, we really do want to be your children. And we see here that you want to channel your love to us and through us to others. And we like the idea of receiving it. We really do. And I pray that we would. I pray that we would make room for the fact that you're still in us and still with us and good, still ahead of us, guaranteed. Now, what you're going to do is you are going to, and you're really good at it, put us in situations where we need to tune you in. And as we learn to tune you in, as Jesus learned to tune you in, we are able to endure and we find ourselves in difficult places, but slowly our faith increases. It doesn't happen fast. 
But then we find that we have something real to give to individuals who feel separate from God. That's what you would do. You would, you want to challenge, channel your love to us and through us. I pray that you would continue to work in us over time. Again, you're very patient so that we could be conduits of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a closing song. I'm going to pray for us and pray for the meal. If you're able to stick around, please do. If you're able to come to the seminar this Saturday and haven't let us know that, let us know so that we can get your materials uh, prepared. But let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for the good news and how you channel it to and through your sons and daughters. And would you work in our hearts so that we would both understand the message and um, be in a position because we do understand to be able to channel your love and grace to those who need to hear it, those who believe they live outside of it because they're weak, because they are ungodly, and because they're sinners, and they feel like enemies, and they feel like there's no hope for them. And Jesus, you came so that there would be hope for the weak and the ungodly and the sinners and the enemies. Thanks for that. Thanks for grace in Jesus' name. And would you then take this food and and I, the time we are able to spend eating and connecting with others. We give that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.